welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. All right, and welcome to episode 22 of the Brain Tools Podcast. Before we jump into an episode we're really, really excited about, uh, Kieran and I have a little bit of news to announce. We've just surpassed 10,000 downloads uh, in only 22 episodes as well. Very grateful for everyone's support, our listeners, uh, and the Brain Tools community, which is just growing and growing uh, over the past six months. I just wanted to say that before we jump into this episode. Yeah, absolutely, Sam. It's it's nuts. We are so, so hardened to have so many people actually listen to what we thought at the initial stage were just going to be two guys just having a chat about neuroscience and the fact that I think, Sam, in March, it's like something like six, 7,000 downloads already. So, it's very, very heartening. And uh, look, let's be frank, what better way to celebrate than this milestone with, uh, I'll say, a very, very special guest? Oh, absolutely. Not only our first guest on this show, but we are both huge raving fans, to say the least. We're very, very super excited to have Dr. Sarah Mackay with us today. Uh, as a bit of a backstory, if you don't know her work, which is amazing, she is a neuroscientist who translates brain research uh, into strategies for working professionals in health, education, coaching. She has a PhD in neuroscience from Oxford uh, and after her four years of her postdoc there, she hung up the lab coat, went into communications. She was a freelancer for many years, writing uh, and sharing the brain and science for ABC. She was a TV presenter for ABC Catalyst. She now runs and directs the Neuroscience Academy, is the author of the amazing book we're going to touch on today, The Women's Brain Book, Neuroscience of Health, Hormones and Happiness, uh, and director of Think Brain. And she also has a brilliant TEDx talk. What? A wrapper, amazing <laughs> guest, Sarah. So excited to have you with us here today. If you can't tell, oh, thanks, guys, and congratulations on all those podcast downloads. It's a cool achievement. I'm glad I can be yeah. here to help celebrate. Yeah, thanks. Well, we're really, really excited to have you help celebrate and and share some of your amazing uh, ways of explaining the brain, and obviously some of your wisdom too. Yeah, we've uh, we've done Sarah. I'm not gonna lie, we've we've stalked you a lot over the past. Oh we've literally just done a deep dive into all your content in the best way yeah, possible. Right. And the conversations Sam and I have had have been awesome. And I think what's been really interesting when we and how we want to sort of start this off is probably the, the the classic way. But we got interested in neuroscience just based on you know seeing people like yourself um, sort of deep dive into it. So we're sort of just wondering as a starter, like how did you become so interested in the brain to make it your life's work? Oh, that's a good question. And it really has been my life's work. I I loved school. I was one of those kids that loved learning, but I was not a nerd because I did lots of other cool <laughs> things too. But um, I did I did head off to university and did kind of, I don't know what they do in Australia, but in New Zealand, it was kind of a health sciences first year. So you do biology, chemistry, psychology, et cetera. And in, in a psychology lecture, we were taking a look at the biology of the brain. And that was really the first time outside, you know, school that we'd, I'd started thinking about the biology of human behaviour and how humans think and feel the way we do. Before that, it had always been, you know, photosynthesis or, you know, the biology of the worm gut. And, and that was cool and interesting and I loved all of that. But but having starting to get some insights, and, and I guess biology was always, you know, a great interest of mine, starting to get insights into the biology of psychology, I suppose, was I was utterly captivated. And I still remember the lecture when they were talking about the structure of a synapse. And it sounds so nerdy now to talk about it, but I still remember just thinking that is just so clever and so cool that these connections between neurons kind of underlie so much of what we think and feel and do. Um, and then I read the book by Oliver Sacks, who is a neurologist who writes these amazing case studies. Sadly, he departed this planet a couple of years ago, but uh, he he was just a master at 
conveying the stories about what goes wrong with people's thoughts, feelings and behaviours when their brains go wrong. And I was I was captivated by that. And this really shows my age. So this is way back in the early 90s. <laughs> and at that time, neuroscience was not really a discipline in, in very many universities. I grew up in Christchurch, New Zealand. And at that point in time, Otago University had just started a degree course in neuroscience. So I switched universities and I was the first cohort to graduate with a degree in neuroscience. So I think one person had graduated the year before I did, and then I, there was probably maybe about 10 of us graduated with a degree in neuroscience when I did back in the 90s. So it was a really brand new, thrilling, exciting, very multi multidisciplinary concept back then. It still is now, but it was it was really cool to kind of be there seeing when it first sort of started um, and, and back then, I would say I was studying neuroscience and people wouldn't even really know what I was talking about. It wasn't really a thing that the rest of the world was interested in. Um, so so I've, I just thought everything from synapses through to thinking about why we do the things that we do was was utterly fascinating. And I guess, you know, I was, everyone, everyone else is caught up now. We all, we all interested in that. Um, I, and I guess I just really like understanding the sort of the nitty gritty biological mechanisms underlying all of that as well. I just find it a really satisfying topic to think about. And this is like what said 25, 26, 27 years later, I still I still think the same way. Amazing. Mm. <laughs> That's so cool. Was that book uh the the man who mistook his wife? His wife for a hat. For a hat. Yeah. 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 Great book. He was yeah. also a powerlifter and just super interesting human being. He was a very interesting human. And when um I was really fortunate to to do my PhD at Oxford and he came and gave a talk there in the um in Blackwell's the the bookshop there. And I was so excited, I was like, I'm gonna finally meet this man. And he was talking about perhaps the most boring of his books. He wrote about ferns. Um, you know, like the, the plant, cool. and he came yeah. and gave a talk about ferns, and I was, I was like, and there were some people, and there were a lot of disappointed neuroscientists there <laughs> of, my, of my generation. We'd all been inspired to study neuroscience because of him, and he was there to talk about plants, and it was just a bit deflating. But that was his book that he had out at the time. I can, I, can, I can promise you we're not talking about ferns today. No. So if you've tuned in to listen about the brain, that's not happening. I do. I, do I, I am quite a fan of um, plants and leaves and I do a bit of botanical art. So I do oh, wow. understand his fascination with them as well. But yeah. um, that was a bit that was a bit disappointing the one time I finally <laughs> got to meet finally got to meet the man who put me on my path and it wasn't about neuroscience. <laughs> and he talks about plants. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, both of us are also really, really into the nitty-gritty and the neurobiology and the neurochemistry of how things work in the brain. So I can mm. totally relate to that. I know that a main part of your research uh, when you were at Oxford was centered around neuroplasticity. Mm. And I just was really curious about what made you explore, explore that area of neuroscience. Is there any fascinating experiments that come Yeah. Mind? Well, look, then we didn't even use the word neuroplasticity. <laughs> Yeah, right. It was um, a bit of a faux pas back then. It was, well, it, it wasn't even that. It was really that the word wasn't in, in common usage, even within the research lab. And and when we did use it, it was used in a very, you know, we, we were understanding the physiology of how synapses changed over time. It, it didn't, ha now it's become almost quite mystical and it's kind of taken on a life mm. of its own, that word. And there's a lot of hype and hope around it. Then it was just very mechanistic. This is how we, a word we use to describe how the brain changes. And we certainly knew that the brain changed, but I suppose for me, it was really getting back to just being super curious and fascinated by the underlying synapse physiology. And I was really interested in development, brain development, how do synapses make those mm. first few decisions? Why would one neuron decide to form a synaptic partnership with another neuron? What is the, the sort of underlying story behind that? And very much this nature-nurture question, is it all predetermined genetically, those early phases of development? How much is genetic and predetermined? How much is sculpted by the environment? And I was studying the development of visual cortex. So, you know, we were able to look at almost in real time how neurons started to respond to visual stimuli in the brain at the very, very earliest stages of development and how that changed once you had experienced vision. You know, you're born, you have never seen anything, and then you start to experience, you know, the world. And, and, and a large part of our brain is devoted to, to vision and to processing vision. And so I was just... Super fascinated by that. How does that synaptic dance 
sort of happen and, and how do those decisions get made at that real microscopic level? Yeah, it, it's such a good point, isn't it? Like that that dance that we probably don't really appreciate what's going on on the micro level um, to lead to that sort of macro macro behavior, so to speak. Mm, and that's mm. something that is, is so fascinating right now at the moment, which I know Sam and I have looked into a fair bit. Mm, mm. And I guess um, it, it, at the time it also, and I loved what I did, but a big part of me felt there was a big piece missing in that that was super cool, fascinating science, but did it really matter? And that, and then that didn't, people didn't care, but it didn't matter. I didn't feel like I was really, wasn't going to save anyone's life. It wasn't going to cure blindness even. It was, it was, it was just a really curious biological question to answer. And I suppose that's perhaps what led me away from the research lab was the further you go along in your research career, and many scientists find this, not only are you just flogging yourself trying to get research money and grants and get papers published and all of that kind of the, the work of academia, in a, in a bigger sense, you have to become an expert on a really, really small field. And I you, and I joke that you become an expert on almost nothing. And I felt <laughs> that there was always a piece missing. While I, I, the, the questions I was really curious to answer, and then I, I, I kind of moved on to work my postdoc research was looking at spinal cord injury. So that is a question that, that is a really important question to answer, and I still fundamentally believe that is that that's a real area that I'm I'm interested in, but haven't had as much chance to explore over the years. It felt like it mattered, and and now I try and make all of my decisions. Not only is you know, do I like this? Is it cool? Is it interesting? Is it awesome? But also, does it help? And, and my PhD research was awesome, but I, I never felt like it helped. And I guess that was one reason that I moved out of academia. Was so much of it was awesome, but none of it felt like it really helped enough. Oh, that resonates with me so deeply. The amount of conversations I have with my mum who's in academia, uh, in the university sphere, and the mm. ivory tower of yeah. knowledge yeah. being <laughs> away. And also, as you said before, the paper mill too of, of oh, journal yeah, publication and, and getting stuck into it. So I really like that you, you transferred to more of a practical lens of how do we then help people with this yeah. knowledge and information. It was, it, was a, it was a tortured soul decision, though, I think. I don't know what field yeah. your mum's in, but any academic who has left, it's, it's a real deep part of your identity and being a scientist and being yeah. a scientist in academia was all I ever wanted to be and I really loved. I just wanted to be a university lecturer and do a bit of research and it, what, it didn't end up being what I hoped it would be, which is a bit disappointing yeah. in lots of ways. But, um, I mean, I guess now what I do is 10 times better <laughs> and more than I ever <laughs> dreamed it would be. But that decision was was tough. It was a really, really tough decision to make. Yeah. Um, and I still, you know, kind of turn all of that part of my life over in my mind a lot and think about that process. The, the what ifs, the grass is always greener. But in saying that, uh, that kind of leads us to – the the next next bit of the interview we'd love to talk a little bit about what you're doing now because mm. that transition away from academia has led to some of your amazing work and in particular both Kieran and I read and loved the woman's brain book well done um, boys <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> I think I'll, it's just, really I'll tell your readers that it is a book for women and the men who love them yeah. whether they be dads or yeah. brothers or husbands or teachers or therapists you know couldn't agree more with that statement. Mm. I think it should be mandatory reading for for boys in the the late end of school. You know, year eleven, year twelve. I <laughs> right, think all I have, those boys should I read have it. A, I have a son in year eight. There's no way he <laughs> read go. his mother's book. He, he might but, not be ready for that yet. But I am 17, 18. I am his mum. Anytime yeah. I talk about the brain or anything like that with them, they just go, "Oh God!" The eyes glow. And, no, and then I and then I just say to them, "You're so developmentally normal, darling." <laughs> and they hate that. <laughs> That's a neuro burn. That's a it brain is a, burn. I it's a mum burn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't appreciate. They don't, oh. And then they go, "You're so developmentally normal." <laughs> yeah. You're raising boys with delight. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. I mean, I get the same thing with my partner. Whenever I try to tell her what's going on in her brain, she uh, she looks like she's about to slap me in the face. <laughs> but um, coming coming back to the brain, neurosplaining is no good. Neurosplaining, yeah, you can't do brain splaining. <laughs> um, it was it was really eye opening for us, the in particular when we were reading, and kind of the question we had first up was, what led you to writing a book on the female brain? Yeah, that's a really great question because I wrote a PhD thesis and some academic mm. papers and the last thing I ever wanted to do again was write anything of any size. So I was, yep. I had no intention of writing a book. 
one, because I didn't want to do the work. I thought, that sounds like a lot of hard work. And two, it had to be something that I was super curious about. It had to be awesome. It had to help. And there wasn't really anything that was, um, I suppose, scratching that itch of wanting to learn about something new. I didn't want to just write about everything I was already doing. So I had no book idea at all. And I, and I honestly was rung up one day by a book publisher, by a woman, um, Jeanne Rickmans, who's now my agent, um, you, that's long sort of convoluted story, but but she said, do you want to write a book? And I said, no, not really. And she said, oh, go on, come on, let's meet and have a chat. And I said, I haven't got any ideas. She said, that doesn't matter. Let's, I, I, I think you've got one in you. And we'd never met and she's quite charismatic and persuasive. So we met and had a cup of coffee and, and we were chatting and she asked, and this is perhaps a, a question anyone who feels like they've got a book in them, unlike me, who did not, she said, what have you ever written for an audience that, that has resonated with them? And that was easy because I was doing a lot of writing at that point in time for the ABC here in Australia. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and one of the topics I had written was about menopause and brain and this concept of brain fog, which some people may be – is it brain fog people are familiar with what menopause is but brain fog is kind of a colloquial term you would use for feeling like you can't pay attention or you're feeling like you things are slowing down that you just feel foggy you you know your attention span isn't what it used to be your memory isn't what it used to be all those kinds of brain slowing down type words anyway I'd written an article on menopause and brain fog and how it was not the first signs of Alzheimer's disease because lots of women get to their late 40s early 50s and think God, I'm getting Alzheimer's disease when it's really just a co- reasonably Scary. common symptom of the the sort of the the, the roller coastering hormones of, of menopause and that kind of wind down of your fertility. Um, anyway, that article had an enormous response, which was mostly women going, "Oh, thank goodness! I thought I was going mad, or I thought I was getting dementia." Um, and then I told that to Jeanne over coffee, and she said, "Well, there's your book. Write a book about menopause." And I was like, "I'm 40." don't really think that seems like something for old ladies it just didn't it was what my mum might be interested in it just didn't kind of at all in any way captivate me um I'm a bit older now so I'm slightly more interested I felt like I just had my babies you know they're sort of um 11 and 12 now my boys but um and then she made a joke about baby brain and then I went oh well you know, I don't actually think that's a thing. One, because I'm a Kiwi and we don't do that stuff there. And two, I'm pretty sure there's no evidence that there is such a thing as cognitive decline during pregnancy. I was kind of vaguely familiar with that research. And then I, I literally did have an aha moment. I thought, you know what? I've been a neuroscientist all these years and I've never really thought about all these female health issues, pregnancy, you know, going on the oral contraceptive pill, what happens to your brain at puberty, I knew that mm-hmm. girls and women were slightly more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression than men, but I wasn't sure if that, there was some biology behind that or women were more likely to go to the doctor and ask for help. I knew women were more likely to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I wasn't sure whether that was just because women lived for longer than men. And I realised there were so many questions about the female lifespan that could be answered through the lens of neurobiology. But more importantly, I didn't know the answers to any of those questions. It was not my field. And that was really thrilling and exciting because it was something awesome that I didn't know anything about. And that's still a driver. Like all these years later, I still love learning new stuff. And I thought, well, if I don't know the answers to this, there's going to be plenty of people who also don't. And these are just questions that women are thinking about a lot of the time. Um, so that was sort of the, the birth of the book, I suppose. And I thought I will take a womb to tomb, look at the female lifespan. Of course. Um, I, I sort of started writing it in 2016, um, the year Donald Trump got elected and the world was getting more woke and the questions people started asking me were a lot more confronting than I, I thought I was just going to write about, you know, the, the, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and the control of the menstrual cycle, not getting people asking me really, really tough questions about sex and versus gender, um, mm. you know, questions around um, the difference between the male and female brain. That's the one the guys always asked. There, there were a lot of really confronting questions that I was starting to be asked that if I was writing it in 2010, I never would have, no one would have really considered. So that was a real kind of challenge as well because that was like way out of my field of expertise. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the book. 
Yeah, it's, I, I think that absolutely speaks volumes to when when we were going through it. It's very clear that, you know, awesome that the, the lifespan of a female is obviously mapped out, but it clearly showed your curiosity, like the questions you were finding answers to throughout, which I personally found really, really interesting. And I think mm. this is this is bringing me back to when I was going through it, like the big gap, maybe at schools in terms of sex ed and what, what we're taught, right, especially about mm. chapter four menstruation. And that was a mm. part where I was sitting there having done neuroscience at university, like, wow, this is such a gap uh, in terms of what I understand. I thought, after speaking to my uh, partner about it, she was like, I have no idea what goes on in my brain during this. I just have told there's a bunch of stuff. So I was wondering, like, in, in Chapter 4, like, what actually happens in the female brain during menstruation? That's Well, that's really interesting. So there's the neural control of our ovaries and there's also the ovarian control of our brain. So there's this what we call a circuit. And I often talk about, and you might be familiar with this being neuro guys yourself, the the in, in, infernal problem of the complex feedback loop. Because essentially whenever you try and think about something the brain might do in controlling the body, the body will always feed back to the brain. And you can't, it's never linear. It's a circle. It goes round and round and round. So that does make most questions about the brain and the body and emotions and behaviors really complicated because you can never kind of pin down <laughs> anything. But I mean, from sort of like the big picture, this sort of 28 day story that most people would be familiar with, um, you know, we have the egg ripening in the ovaries, a rising level of estrogen that sends signals up to the brain, which, you know, sort of start to cause release of hormones, which will cause the egg to ripen further. And that kind of feedback loop goes round and round and round. Eventually you get ovulation, you get either the eggs fertilized or not, you'll get release of different hormones from the ovaries, whether or not the egg is fertilized. But again, these feedback through to the brain. And so there's that constant kind of signaling from the ovarian hormones up to the brain and then the brain releasing hormones back is kind of an answer to the signal that they have received. So the, there's that kind of conversation going on. If we're just to look at the effect of the ovarian hormones on the brain, and I guess that's what a lot of people are interested in, and we look at the, the sort of the main one everyone knows about estrogen, um, I mean, we don't know a ton about what happens in the human female brain at the microscopic level over the course of the menstrual cycle because we can't like ask women for little bits of their brain, you know, from day one to day 28 to take a look. We can either do a brain scan that doesn't always give us very clear data or we can look to see what happens in animals. And we, because that's, you know, kind of what you do in the research lab, you look at the little scurrying animals of the lab. And one of the, the kind of the biggest pieces of information that we have from animal research, and so we assume it's going to be the same in women, is that uh, estrogen, the ovarian hormone, influences what we would call brain, brain plasticity um, mm. and in a very good way. And, and so women tend to sort of default to blaming our hormones when things go wrong without any understanding that estrogen is almost what we might call a cognitive enhancer. And one of the ways it does this is by promoting flourishing of new connections and new synapses within the brain almost over the course of a month. So when you have your peak of estrogen around ovulation, if you're ovulating, that is, if you're not on the pill and you're not pregnant or prepubital or menopausal, you'll see this kind of flourishing of all the dendrites um, on a neuron in certain areas of the brain which are receptive to estrogen. And then you'll see that kind of flourishing kind of wane a little bit as you kind of get through to the end of your, your, your menstrual cycle when estrogen's low. So we've got this quite nice sort of monthly kind of waxing and waning of plasticity going on in the brain whereby, you know, the connections kind of flourish and then they're pruned away if they're not needed. And I think that's really, really cool. If we take a look at times in the lifespan when you might get a really good hefty dose of estrogen and one of those times is during pregnancy and you receive a thousandfold more estrogen during one pregnancy than you get the rest of your entire life all added up. Again, women tend to go, oh, I feel a bit, had a bit of baby brain during pregnancy and we tend to be a bit dismissive about how our brain mm. is functioning during that time, many women when they go through pregnancy. But we know from a biological perspective, that estrogen is a cognitive enhancer. And so we're getting a ton of flourishing. We're getting a ton of plasticity going on in women's brains when estrogen is present in this high, um, kind of high dose. Um, and we see some very significant changes taking place in women's, human women's brains during pregnancy and all the rest of the mammalian animal kingdom, all of the females that have had babies. Um, and in fact, 
all, 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 all um, female mammals that aren't human get smarter during pregnancy. They're better able to find their way through a maze and remember where they've been. And that cognitive enhancement and smarts actually lasts for a lifespan. So pregnancy actually makes you smarter, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and that's because we understand so much now about the hormone estrogen and, and how it promotes plasticity in the brain. And so the really cool research has come out of Monash in Melbourne in the last year. Um, a PhD student there, Winnie Orchard, has found out that this kind of resilience built into women's brains during pregnancy, this research was out when I wrote my book, but it actually lasts for a lifetime. So women who have raised, had babies and raised those children have actually kind of younger brains than women who have never had children at all. And part of that is due to estrogen. Wow. Mm. My mind is blown. (laughs) I'm not encouraging women to go out and have babies because it will make them smarter, but I do think we need to sort of start flipping that baby brain script a little bit. You know, we're very happy to promote equality and we should be working and we should be out there doing all of the things that women can do um, and we need to realise that there's a good biological remit for for that as well. Babies can help the brain. They can. The, they make, the yeah. mother. And the really interesting thing is, we know from animal studies that the mater- we call, we would call it a maternal instinct. Like if you've ever had a cat who's had kittens or a dog, or you've ever had you know watched animals in the lab, they they have a re- they have very um, instinctual maternal behaviours where they'll kind of gather the pups up and they'll feed them and they'll look after them. Um, now, now Mother Nature's kind of designed humans in a similar type of way whereby the regions in our brain that we see change significantly during pregnancy, and we can actually see these changes on a brain scan if we were to do an MRI of a group of pregnant women and a group of non-pregnant women, um, or women who've never had a baby, and we can see that the parts of the brain involved with social cognition, with empathy, so thinking about what someone else is thinking, a feeling, sorry, and theory of mind, thinking about what someone else is thinking, we actually see structural changes in those parts of the brain during the course of a pregnancy. So in a way, their mother nature's sculpting women's brains to not just get their, and we're sculpting, you know, not just your body so you can carry a baby and feed a baby, but your brain so that you can interact with your baby. And, you know, it's kind of preparing your brain for motherhood in a way too. Wow, that's mm. absolutely fascinating. It's just mm. another testament to how much Mother Nature does prepare us for the trials and tribulations of being a human. Yeah, and, and probably dads, also- dads too can learn those skills. They may not get the shortcut of their brains via, you know, yes. pregnancy, but dads and we know adoptive mums and we know animals in the animal kingdom, we can we can still develop those skills because um, people always, that's always the follow-up question to this, you can develop those skills. You don't need to just have them shortcutted by Mother Nature via pregnancy, but that is kind of what happens. It doesn't always guarantee every mother is going to be the most wonderful mother in the world, but there's kind of a bit of a, again, biology and evolution has driven, driven those brain changes through that process too. A bit of a brain boost. And we, we also know about the, the massive release of oxytocin uh, at birth and, yep. and how that bonds uh, women to their babies. Yep. Yep. You, you yep. touched on a little something that I found really personally contextually relevant, um, and that's the, the concept of uh, women being more likely to experience anxiety and stress or report it, report yeah. it more. Um, and I was just wondering, would you be able to articulate like what's going on in the brain from your perspective that's contributing to some of this? Why why does it seem women are more likely to be yeah. uh, suffer from anxiety disorders or, or higher levels of stress? Well, I teach and I present in the early, I think the first, second chapter of the book and I teach in all of my courses. One of the first frameworks I teach is kind of, if you've ever studied psychology, loosely based on the biopsychosocial model, <clears throat> but I call it bottom up, outside and top down. It's just a really visual framework mm. thinking about all things brain and thinking about anything you want to look at through the lens of neuroscience. So let's put anxiety in the middle uh, in the brain and we look at the bottom up biological um, factors contributing to that, the outside in perhaps social, you know, nature, experiential factors contributing to that, and then also top-down, which are things like thoughts and feelings and expectations, beliefs, mindset. And when you place anxiety in the middle of that and you start looking at, well, what are the perhaps some of the factors um, from the bottom up from your biology which might differentiate a male's versus a female's experience? Well, obviously you've got, you know, you've got hormones, you've got, um, you know, differences in genes, you may or may not have huge differences in sleep and exercise and the food we eat. Certainly a lot of outside-in experiences may be different 
depending on, you know, who you are, what society, what culture you grow up in, um, you know, whether you grew up in a real, you know, strong, traditional patriarchal society or you grew up somewhere, you know, more kind of with, with a lot more gender equality. Um, we know that um, trauma is a big part of that. Sexual assault, abuse is, is part of that. Um, women and girls are more vulnerable to that. And then you've got top down, which is always a harder concept to grasp. And another neuroscientist friend of mine always mm. says, thinking about thoughts is like trying to hold on to the fog. Mm. <laughs> we'll hold on to clouds. I think it's a really great yeah. idea. But but we are we both we we kind of do learn to think a little bit differently about ourselves and our and our place in the world when we grow up being you know boys going turning into men and girls turning into women. So we've got different expectations and thoughts and beliefs about our sex and our gender. So when you kind of put all those pieces together, the bottom up and the outside in and the top down, and you kind of sum them together in a population of women and then sum them together in a population of men, there's always going to be individual differences and men suffer from anxiety and depression and some women don't. Um, many women don't. You know, it's not inevitable. We do sort of start to see how that the, those kind of, um, I suppose, normal distribution curves, to be very scientific about it, shift. Um I mean, but, but, you know, we could look at, um, you know, um, contemplating suicide and, and, and actually kind of going through with that kind of, you know, dreadful ideation. That tends to be men and um, are kind of more likely to do that. So what are those kind of bottom-up, outside and top-down pieces which shift that curve a bit more that way? It's not always the brain. The brain in the middle isn't always going to be the answer. Um, we could look at perhaps, um, you know, um, alcohol abuse far more prevalent in men as a, as a coping mechanism um, for perhaps dealing with anxiety versus women may have a different kind of coping mechanism. So I always, there's not a real, it's not like we can look at a, a, a female brain and look at a male brain and go, well, that's why they've got anxiety because they've got the female brain. It's pink um, and the men's is blue yeah. and it doesn't get anxious. It's these, <laughs> these combination of, of multiple factors um, and, and all it does is sort of skew the population one way or another. And we're always, and I suppose one of the huge problems when we try to be super reductionist and use neuroscience and zoom in and look at the brain and look at synapses and look at neurons and look at neurotransmitters and try and answer big population health issues, it's really hard to get the two to meet up. And, and we can get ourselves in a little bit of trouble, I think, when we try and, um, I always say, you know, um, we all want to turn research into me-search and then go, what does all of that mean to me and my personal experience? We can get in trouble with that as well. Um, neuroscience certainly does not have every answer. Psychology does not have every answer. Sociology does not, you know, politics, everything does not. But um, typically it's lots of little pieces in the puzzle add up to differences in populations, which is a bit of a boring sciencey answer really. Oh, not boring at all because I think what, what comes really sad and you mentioned this like really early on in the book is people always talk about nature versus nurture and this yeah, false yeah. dichotomy and it's like as you said it's always somewhere in the middle yeah, um, yeah. and as you as you said with the sort of the model that you use what I'm what I'm really interested in because I think you know we talk about depression and anxiety and we've got you know Sam and I've got sisters as an example um, what would be like your practical like you would create your own brain tool or brain tool set of like practical things talking like self-directed neuroplasticity mm -hmm. almost what would you recommend to, you know, increase, so to speak, well-being or look after well-being and, and sort of decrease stress and anxiety? What things can people do? Oh, look, I always go back to, back to that basic framework because I think it's, it's a really good teaching tool that gives you a visual way of thinking about these competing, well, not competing, but multiple interacting factors and feedback loops. Um, but it also gives you a framework for thinking, okay, well, how about I just choose one bottom-up, one outside and one top-down to work on? Um, I think people may disagree, but you know, the, I think the best thing kind of biologically you can do for yourself is to ensure you get enough sleep. We all feel pretty rubbish if we miss one sleep, one night's sleep. Um, you know, you can bound that up over weeks, months, years of perhaps never getting good sound sleep for a multitude of reasons, whether that be stress, whether that be staying up too late watching TV, whether that be um, not, you know, kind of respecting the light-dark cycle. So I, I always think sleep's the foundation of everything and I'm a massive fan of sleep and I smash out about nine hours solid every night, much to my husband's annoyance. Um, because he waits in the middle of the night and I'm just lying next to him like a log. And plus I also often nap in the afternoons, which I'm a short, strategic and enthusiastic napper in the afternoons. 
Um, so I always think sleep's a good bottom-up way to start, outside in, um, I think honouring the fact that we are, um, you know, kind of social beings whose brains evolved, kind of wandering wandering through the forest gathering food to bring back to our tribe. Sounds a bit kind of paleo or something, but, um, you know, finding ways to just kind of connect naturally with other people in the outdoors sounds so kind of trite and cheesy, but... I think our brains, another way of thinking about our brains is you might have heard of this idea that they're kind of a prediction machine. So they're always trying to figure out what's coming next. And when you don't know what's coming next, there's uncertainty and that can make you feel a bit kind of out of sorts or worried or nervous or hypervigilant. Walking a really well-worn path, like kind of taking a walk through the neighbourhood you know or along the beach you know or if you're feeling kind of not yourself, you might not want to go somewhere new and exciting and confronting. You might just want to kind of walk a really well-worn path with a good friend. And what that does is it kind of gives input into your brain from the outside world that, hey, you've got agency. You you kind of know where you're going. You know what's happening next. You're connecting with someone socially. It sounds so silly and simple, but from the perspective of your brain, it's a real fundamental data input um, mm. to build certainty, to, you know, get your fit and healthy, get you outside in nature, just kind of using your brain for what it evolved to do, which is essentially move through the world looking for resources with other people. Um, and then from the top down, um, I think, and what I think I showed largely and what I tried to show partly in my book was I thought it was going to be a book about bottom-up biology. It ended up being a book about kind of the outside and social support is, is as important as a hormone, if not more important is perhaps having the understanding about the expectations around health outcomes and what we perhaps attribute a lot of how we think and how we feel to. Um, that's a kind of a harder, again, that's like thinking about thoughts, like holding onto a cloud. But, but understanding that expectations, people are happy to talk about placebo effects and um, whatnot, but which is essentially an expectation met or not met. Um, having an understanding that that can influence a health outcome and certainly mood, certainly emotional state in a really, really big way um, is, 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 is useful. And I, and I think changing your thoughts with your thoughts is really tough. I think it's easier to change a thought with a behaviour, <laughs> going for your walk with your mate in, the na- in nature. So, so that would be, I just kind of try and always bring it back to bottom up, outside and top down and just sort of start with one of each um, and you'll be, be well on your way makes a lot of sense kind of come coming at it from all those angles holistically mm. and, and understanding that there are so many different factors that go into the way your brain operates and that leads to the way you feel and as mm. you mentioned before there's that brain body connection via the the vagus nerve um the polyvagal theory and then mm. and then how that interrelates to all your body so there's that continuous loop yeah, yeah and yeah. people often often go to try to change one thing mm. and they say oh I did this. How come I don't feel better? It's like, well, have you have you looked at what's going on socially? Yeah, yeah. Have yeah. you looked at what's going on with your sleep? Have you looked at what's going on with your, your diet, your yeah. regime, your routine? Yeah. yeah. So, and certainly, yeah. yeah, with my book when I was writing that, and it didn't matter whether we were looking at newborn babies or kids going through puberty, or you know, mothers going through pregnancy, or women going through menopause, or people entering you know the very last years of their life, whether they be male or female. And every researcher I spoke to, and every study, well, quite not necessarily individual study, but kind of pool of research, you know, bottom up's important, but often it's that, you know, it's that outside and it's that social connection. And, and it was the other people who almost played the greatest role in the, the life of any brain at any point in time. And there's another sort of saying out that, you know, the, the, the best thing for a brain is another person. It could also be the worst thing. And building that kind of social architecture around us at every point and understanding how important that is. And I think 2020 with, you know, gosh, we're so lucky here in Australia, aren't we? Oh, but yeah. the rest of the world has suffered so much and, you know, with all the lockdowns and social isolation, which I think has been the right thing to do to kind of deal with this pandemic, but it's ripped people's hearts out, not being able to be together. Um, so I think people have got a real great new awareness of the importance of, of that, um, uh, you know, to our mental absolutely. health. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, I know there's a there's a great book called The Happiness Brain by researcher Dean Burnett. And mm. one of my quotes, oh, yeah. the quote I love loved by him was, yeah. if you had to put a gun to my head and ask me after all the research I looked through, what was the one thing that contributed most to happiness? And it would be other people. Other people, people. yeah. So, I think I completely agree with him. And I think yeah. the world of self-help has done other people a bit of a disservice because it's meant it's all about self and it's taught people to look inside for the answers and they're not usually oh, there. Yeah. They're usually out there yeah. with other people. And I think that's where we need to be, not just thinking about our own personal well-being, but the well-being of other people. That's You haven't got that. Yeah. You can sleep in that. You, have, you, you know, you've kind of got it sorted. Um, that's what a newborn baby needs. Um, and that's, you know, what we need at every point in the lifespan. I think we just feel like we don't or I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, if you held a gun to my head, I think I'd agree with Dean. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of right, pretty Dean. Um, and actually on that statement too, mm. there's another neuroscientist I love, Moran Surf, and he said self-help's the wrong title. It should be called others' help Yeah, because often it's agree. relying on other people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we get kind of into the last 10 minutes of, of what's been an amazing uh, interview, we just had a couple of questions around – uh, the Neuroscience Academy, mm. uh, which we know you started and founded and having not been through it myself, but seeing the overview and the amount of information in it, which is amazing and mm. how you cover it. Uh, the real question is, you know, like, what what's it all about? Mm. What, what made you start it? But more importantly, what are the things that you're trying to teach people with the Neuroscience Academy? Yeah, I just saw a real gap, I suppose. For There was this thirst and interest in all things neuroscience and there were a lot of people out there Definitely. pontificating about neuroscience who weren't neuroscientists. There's a couple more of us now than there was sort of five years ago when I started this. But I was very frustrated with this continual promotion of really old-fashioned ideas that weren't accurate and didn't reflect up-to-date science. And besides those bigger picture kind of ideas, yeah. I'd, I'd spend a lot of time um, building professional development programs for, like, say, the RACGP here in Australia for, for health professionals and saw that um, the people who were really interested in using using and un understanding and using neuroscience, and I say using neuroscience because I'm not entirely convinced we can use it, but we can talk about it and mm. we can gain you know, insights and informed tools that we may use to help other people. I saw a lot of people in the helping professions, teachers, coaches, therapists, psychologists, personal trainers, a lot of people in that helping space with this absolute fascination on about neuroscience but, you know, there was like a few grey-haired old American blokes, you know, the Tony Robbins and the, um, what's that, yep. Joe Dispenza placebo guy. You know, well, yeah. they're not totally misappropriated. They're, they're not neuroscientists and they're not up to date and they're not teaching kind of the fundamentals so people can build on their skill set and gain a real, gain some critical thinking skills about neuroscience and, and gain some scientific literacy rather than just kind of hype and hope and throwing neuroscience words around what I call neurosplaining. Uh, so, so that kind of was where that that, that came from, and so it's a, it's essentially as built as a professional development program, so people can go and get their hours of training to keep up their psychology registration or teaching registration, and whatnot. Um, it's an enormous task to curate the field of neuroscience down into uh, seventeen lessons, um, and you have to leave out a lot more than what you want to want to keep in but essentially I walk people through some of the basics of brain anatomy and physiology um, at the beginning we we take a look at bigger concepts like thinking and emotions and motivation and then move on to what can we do to kind of support brain and mind health in that last few weeks and I teach it <clears throat> over 12 weeks under the, the banner of the neuroscience academy so it's kind of 12 weeks we do a lesson or two every week we have Q&A's via zoom and we have there's lots of reading and resources and you can sort of exam at the end and get a certificate. Um, and I also teach it as a as sort of a 10-day sprint boot camp version. So we do the same um, 17 lessons but over the course of 10 days, which is actually really fun. People um, stay pretty engaged for those two weeks, which always surprises me because there's a lot of content to get through. Um, and then there's mm. other sort of self-study versions of that online. And, um, and I'm now in the process um, of – for all those people that have completed all of that neuroscience training and want the next sort of step in their professional development and, and a large proportion of them are coaches coaches are professional coaches are really interested in using neuroscience but I have lots of feelings about the use of neuroscience because it's not always done well and wisely um, and I'm, I'm putting together mm. kind of a, a part two or 201 training um, to support 
to support those those people with being a bit more thoughtful about this this approach that people are super keen and enthusiastic about doing it but I think sometimes the enthusiasm sort of is a little bit ahead of the actual knowledge and understanding and the gap can be dangerous yeah, as, as you've said, it's very much, there's a big difference between using the vocabulary and language of neuroscience and actually explicitly teaching what, you know, neuroscience is and, you, as you said, mm. the critical thinking around it. Um, yeah. Being in education myself, I, I find it a fascinating one, which is, you know, in schools, we like, we all have a brain, but in schools, like, it's not taught. You're not really taught. You maybe dabble in it if you're doing psychology. I'm just wondering from your, and your opinion, like, why do you think not necessarily in your own, but just brains aren't explicitly taught in schools, just in your experience. Oh, I have absolutely no idea about um, the science the science curriculum or neuroscience curriculum. I guess it's a reasonably complex subject. And look, I, you know, I'm not that old, but it was really only a discipline within universities kind of for about the last 20, 25 years. Um, I think it is a really curious and interesting topic to perhaps teach young people. I don't know whether they do in a high school. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure I'll hear if my boys do or not. They probably won't actually tell me. Um, it's, it's a tough topic to teach well, I think, because there's a lot of just kind of chat out there, which isn't necessarily very mm. useful. I, I'm not entirely even sure, and there's people that might agree and people that might disagree about whether teachers should be taught about the brain because teachers are real, really experts at teaching children. They're not experts at teaching brains. <laughs> they know what works in the classroom. They know what motivates kids. They know how to get kids to kind of engage and to learn and to understand and to, you know, behave, not like be good and sit down, but, you know, change behaviour as part of a learning process. Um, whether or not having an insight into the brain is going to help or not, I'm not even necessarily convinced about that. But I think kids might like to learn about the brain, but it's a pretty crowded curriculum you know, every time I turn on Q&A, <laughs> someone's saying that primary school teachers should be teaching kids this and this and that and that, and there's not a lot of space um, in, in there. So, um, look, I don't have super strong feelings about it, to be honest. Um, mm. Yeah. It's it's a, yeah, it's a very interesting facet. I know personally we, we both feel, specifically uh, I feel that I would have probably benefited from learning certain elements of the brain going through school. And there's yeah. a bit of research out there from Stephanie Fay around growth mindset yeah. that shows teaching kids about neuroplasticity yeah. is actually a much more effective and direct path to teach them the concepts of growth mindset. Yeah, um, growth mindset and the flexibility mind, there. It's a bit of a minefield. Well, um, exactly, right. Yeah. How do you teach a kid mindset when the concept of mindset is such a yeah. huge thing to grasp? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, know, I mean, I think teaching them how their brain learns might be useful and it's probably really good, yeah. you know, for them to understand the tools of learning, like why, you know, why do you need sleep, how to pay attention, um, space, you know, you could almost kind of teach it in a, in a more of a skills-based way. Um, these are why you learn this way. Verse, and it could be part of that versus here's a brain and it's kind of pink and wrinkly and this is what it looks like because I'm not all, you know. I also, th there's some, also some really interesting research about teaching teenagers about teenage brains and a lot of them feel it kind of mm. removes a lot of agency and kind of reduces them down to you just are your brain and that's why you are the way you are, um, which is also kind of, I think, what we, and I, you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't be taught it, but what we teach them and how and why I think would be quite useful to be to do in a ref, in a in a kind of a quite reflective way too. Yeah, hmm. really useful. Yeah, that's interesting around agency. I didn't know hmm. that. So as we uh, as we're wrapping up towards the end here, just have one last question before um, we just ask a little bit more about you to share. You know your work. Last question is the podcast is called Brain Tools. It's about brain tools, about practical things you can do. And I wanted to ask from your perspective, from all your amazing research and all the work you've done and the work you put out there, what would the, if you could choose one or two things to do from a practical perspective for everyone, maybe aside from sleep, what oh, would those things be that people can do to support I was going to say sleep. <laughs> I think related, look, I think, That's cheating. Yeah. I think related, like related to that, um, it's not sleep so much, but have an appreciation of the fact that we also evolved on this planet. We didn't evolve to rule this planet. We're part of Mother Nature. We evolved on a planet that spins on its axis as it goes around the sun. 
and to, to learn to respect that light dark cycle a little bit more watch the sunrises watch the sunsets turn the lights the artificial lights down when it gets dark outside and just learn to sort of honor that you know we are part of mother nature too um, and by doing that there'll be a lot of positive knock-on effects in terms of stress regulation in terms of better sleep um, in terms of better mental health and those links are really well established um, from something as simple as, you know, we, we, we don't need to spend all day under artificial lights all day long and then go home and then we're still usually all at home all the time at the moment. But but perhaps learn to respect that fact a, a little bit more. Um, I think we think we're all above that now, but we're not. So simple, right? Mm. Like live how we, our brains evolved to live. Yeah. Because the alternative is kind of not proving to be working out very well. Exactly right. <laughs> well, Sarah, this has been so, so, so interesting. And I've been taking copious notes in my head on everything with the female brain, which has been amazing. And we've learned so much from you in this time. I'm sure many people within the Brain Tools community would love to keen to connect and just understand more than what you do. Where can people go to find out more about you? Yeah, for sure. So I have a website, which is drsarahmackay.com, where I explain the brain. Um, so they can find links to social media and my courses and um, blog posts there. So that's probably the best place to start. And also at the moment, I'm spending a bit more time on Instagram than almost anywhere else, but I've had a bit of a hiatus the last couple of weeks because I was teaching this two-week online sprint and I didn't really have much capacity for anything else. Um, and that, again, is... Uh, Dr. Sarah Mackay on Instagram. Fantastic. Um, go check it out. Also, if you have a chance, check out um, Sarah's uh, LinkedIn as well, where she posts some great stuff. That's actually where I came across oh, some of your work. I'm not, I'm not very good at LinkedIn. <laughs> I, know. I, should pay a bit I more totally disagree about. with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I totally disagree oh, okay. with you. <laughs> Um, and Aussies, really and if you're in Australia, go to see, go to ABC iView and watch um, the episode on Catalyst on um, – Yes. How to live longer. Or, how, or, how to help your brain live longer. We go and visit some biohackers in Silicon Valley. Um, and that was pretty entertaining. <laughs> yeah, that's very entertaining. Mm. And also go watch the, the TEDx talk. Which oh, yeah. Is that's fantastic. That's on, by the way. that's on sleep, but we've talked enough about that. It's on afternoon naps. We talked plenty about sleep. I don't think you can talk too much no, about I love sleep. sleep. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we had an amazing, amazing time talking with you and learning from you. Uh, for everyone listening, that's going to be uh, us for this week, wrapping up Brain Tools. Uh, so go check out Brain Tools on Instagram or LinkedIn. Follow us along for more or join us on podcast, uh, Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes, and feel free to leave a review if you like what you listen to. Otherwise, that's it for this week. Uh, bye from me. Bye from me.